This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Our Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for the awesome privilege to be here. Thank you for the theme that helps us to realize that without you, we can do nothing. We've often been like your disciples. Lord, we've been trained, we've been educated, but yet at times we are just powerless to do what you're requiring us to do. And we pray that sin and selfishness and jealousy, all of these things that would prevent us from being connected with you would be cast out. We pray for spiritual understanding. That was what the Apostle Paul asked of the Colossians, that they would be filled with all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And so we thank you for the promise of the Holy Spirit to anoint our eyes to help us to see the more deeper foundational issues and how worship is expressed. So, Father, thank you for the promise of sending your Spirit now so that he can lead us and guide us into all truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We have time to basically look at a few things between this session and the next one. I'll take a look at architecture. I'll take a look at uh, music. And I will also examine uh, dance as well in connection with music as we think about things that are practical. Uh, and these principles that I'm going to be talking about are, are broad and specific at the same time. So I always, ask, I always have people ask me, well, what about this? What about that? And uh, I, I usually begin with the, the great theological, philosophical foundation, and then we move up. And by the time we move up, most of you can already do the math by the time I get there. And so, uh, so we'll discuss architecture, music, and then, um, and then dance in, in, the, in the very next session. Architecture. Um, as I mentioned uh, yesterday, in the Catholic Church, the Eucharist is central, which means that as you walk into a Roman Catholic Church, uh, the altar is central in the church. It is geographically placed in the center. And what that communicates, of course, is that this is the most important thing that happens in worship. Not only that, but uh, if you take the Roman Catholic, Orthodox, and Anglican communions, which, are, which most of us would think of as high church, it's not just a plain old altar. It is really decked with gold and pearls, and I mean, it's made really uh, fancy and, and extravagant. And why do they do that? Well, because of the doctrine of, of, of the real presence, which, of course, the, uh, the Orthodox and uh, all, all three that I've mentioned before, Catholics and Anglicans and Orthodox, would, uh, would agree with. They would, they, uh, Anglicans would not agree with the transubstantiation issue, but they believe in the real presence. And so the, the king is literally enthroned there. His real presence is in the emblems, and so you've got to make an altar that's fit for the king. And that's why it's, you know, it's, it's, it's extravagant. But if you come, uh, if you're of, uh, if you think of the Protestant Reformation with like folk like Zwingli, who would, practiced the Lord's Supper quarterly, and it was not a real presence in the, the emblems, it was a memorial, which is what we as Adventists believe, then it was a plain altar covered by a white table. All right? And so if, 
Why are churches the way they are at times? Well, theology has a lot to do with it. Sometimes we just normally don't think about these things. And so in Protestantism, the word used to be central. And so that altar was replaced, of course, with the pulpit to communicate the fact that the presence of God no longer mainly comes through the mass, but the presence of God is now communicated through the word of God that is being preached, which is why in in the Protestant Reformation, that altar was replaced. But as I mentioned yesterday, on account of the liturgical movement in the, in the 19th century, moving all the way up to Vatican II during the 1960s, in Protestantism, especially after Vatican II, you have two items then vying for the central position. Protestants have begun a more systematic and regular use of the Lord's Supper. So you have the word, the pulpit and the altar kind of competing for the center now. And Roman Catholics, as a result of Vatican II, have placed more emphasis, at least in their documents, on the Word. Uh, and, and Anglicans as well, but, you know, they call it a homily. It's not a sermon. A homily is like five minutes. Okay, that hardly communicates that the Word of God is central, but yet they're moving more towards that direction. All right? And, as we get to... Um, the charismatic movement, music is central. When the music is going on for 30 to 45 minutes and it occupies that kind of space in the worship service and it's just going on and on and on, it's communicating to you that this is a central aspect of worship. And as one, uh, as one uh, charismatic uh, scholar had stated, as he was kind of tongue-in-cheek going through what was central in Christianity, he said, well, in ages past, it was the Eucharist, and that was through, you know, the altar, and then the Protestants replaced it with the pulpit, and we charismatics uh, then have the drum kit in the central position. So uh, both of the, the altar and the, and the pulpit were laid aside, and now it's the worship bands that's front and center, which sends the message that the, that, the, that the presence of God, how you evaluate the presence of God now, is through the music. And of course, in the charismatic church, a particular style of music, and we'll touch, we'll touch on that. In the emerging church, of course, music, art, Eucharist, um, they are central. The word is not central in the emerging church. It's an epic experience, experiential. I forget what the acronym stands for. I read, I read it to you yesterday. But it's a whole sensory, uh, uh, sensory overload um, way of communicating the presence of God through what you can see, feel, touch. Why? Because of panentheism. You guys remember that fancy word from yesterday? <laughs> Which means that God is infused in everything, but at the same time, God is greater than what he's infused in. If that makes no sense, then that's part of the wine of Babylon, so don't worry about it. Because uh, they want to have their cake and eat it too. You know, pantheism is not a good option for Christianity. Uh, because, you know, to say that there's no distinction between God and creation, that's not going to work. So panentheism allows them to have their cake and eat it too. So in the emerging church, yes, these are the ways that God's uh, presence is communicated. The word is not central in the emerging church. Now, in Adventism, in seeking to pattern our churches then after Willow Creek and Saddleback, 
The subtle message then is that we've moved away or we've thought that we could maintain the word as being central, but we've moved away to an entertainment, more of an entertainment based worship in which God is communicated through either music as in the charismatic church, which the which the mega churches were all about or some of these other things. And so that's been the subtle shift then that we haven't thought about. Also, in some of our churches, we have, um, you know, they're more like community buildings in which anything and everything happens. And so what does that communicate to the worshiper that is in the pew? When, you know, the place where the preacher stands and preaches might be the place from where they shoot basketball hoops the next, you know, uh, the next time. Well, it communicates that there's no, really no difference between the sacred and the common. I'm glad one of our pastors is here because uh, in one of his churches, that's exactly what, what, was, what was going on before he'd gotten there. And so, based on the sanctuary, based on the principles of the Sabbath, there is a distinction between the holy and the unholy. That ought to be reflected somehow in our sanctuaries as well. There ought to be that distinction there. And when he drew a curtain... Uh, in the midst of that and said, you know what? I know we're in the process of trying to raise funds to build a church and all that. And I know we're in this gym right now, but we've somehow got to make a distinction. And I know that the atmosphere of the church changed on account of that. There was more holiness. There was more reverence there. And pastor, if I'm not mistaken, it didn't take too long to raise those funds, did it? Not very long at all. They've been trying to raise them for a long time. But, you know, we can't compromise on his word. And when we do the right thing, God supplies. And so in some of our churches, we've had this more, you know, we can do anything and everything in the church. It's a community thing. We can play basketball. We can play sports. We can preach the word. And unfortunately, that sends the message that more of a panentheistic doctrine than than, than that God is holy. So as we think about building new churches, we ought to keep that in mind as well. All right, moving to something a little more that you may be interested in, the golden, uh, golden calf Christianity, I call it. You know, but it's not, it's not just about a story that took place long ago. You know, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 to 14, the golden calf incident is very relevant for us today because the Apostle Paul mentions there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he, he undergoes three or four main incidents in the history of Israel that are absolutely paramount for our church today and that we should, that we should kind of uh, focus in on because he calls those events types. So if you'll turn there with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and uh, we'll get more specific as we get there. You can see what the apostle is doing here. So the children of Israel have marched through the Red Sea and they were baptized into Moses and in the cloud in verse 2. They did all eat the same spiritual drink for they drank out of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. But with many of them God was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now notice what he says in the next verse. Now these things were our examples and in the original language they were types. Which means they were like little miniature models 
of what would be taking place just before Jesus comes. So these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Now notice where he takes our minds back to in verse 7. He says, Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play a direct reference to Exodus chapter 32 and verse 5 at the golden calf. And then he mentions some other historical events that we're not going to go through right now. But if you look in verse 11, there's a summary again. He says, now all these things happened unto them for in samples. And again, the word in the original language is types. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. So as we think about what things will be like just before Jesus comes, the Apostle Paul says, you know what? We need to take a good look at Israelite history. So let's go back to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. And we're going to connect here music with theology. Exodus chapter 32. Now, as I'm remembering our theme, I actually want you to go to Exodus. Nah, I think I'll get there. Can somebody remind me to go to Exodus 31 if I forget? So, Exodus 32 for, for, for the moment. Exodus 32. But I, I, I don't want to forget the important foundational philosophical uh, mention of the Holy Spirit in Exodus 31. But first what I want to do is describe for you the music and the worship that is taking place there. And if you look at verses 17 and 18, it says, When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said unto Moses, There's a noise of what? War in the camp. Now, did Joshua actually see what was going on? No, he could not see what was going on. And so he interpreted the sound that he heard as war. All right. Now, Music is made up of three primary characteristics, rhythm, melody, and harmony. If it sounds like the noise of war, I want you to tell me which of those three is dominant. Okay. How many for melody? How many for harmony? Rhythm. Some of you are not sure. I wish I had a piano here. <laughs> I could play the most dissonant chords on a piano and just kind of plonk them down, just, just put my fingers wherever I want, one at a time. It wouldn't be the noise of war. It's not necessarily dissonant harmonic chords that are the noise of war. It must be the rhythms. And so here in this example, it's telling us that the rhythms were dominant. And what else is going on in this worship service here? Well, it says they're singing, verse 18. It said, uh, Moses gives them the correct interpretation. He says, it is not the voice of them that shout for mastery, neither is it the voice of them that cry for being overcome, but the noise of them that do what? That sing do I hear. Now, what kind of words do you think they were using? Were they using satanic words? You know, I love you, Satan. 
You're my God. I want to worship you. I hate righteousness. I love iniquity. Do you think those were the words that they were using? No. Why? Because in Exodus chapter 32 and verse 5, it says, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. They were using Christian words. And they were grafting them onto syncopated rhythms. Now, all music has rhythm. If your song is ten seconds long, it has a rhythm to it. We're talking about specific kinds of rhythms, though. Syncopated rhythms. Rhythms that, uh, that might be too fancy a word. Um, these kinds of rhythms you can't really walk to. You know, like a march, you can walk to... These type of rhythms you cannot walk to. You groove to them. You strut to them. When they're played, your body knows exactly what to do, and you don't have to tell it what to do. And it ends up being like a mating call to the opposite sex when you move your body that way. Notice what else was happening here. Verse 19. It says, it came to pass as soon as, you know, this is Moses coming down now. It came to pass as soon as uh, he was near to the camp uh, that he saw the calf and what else? The dancing. Now, I used to be a, a drummer. And so it is the syncopated rhythms that make people move in certain directions. And when the rhythms are dominant and the rhythms are syncopated and they're emphasizing what are called the weaker beats, the movements of the dancers are always sensual. Always. That's a no-brainer for anyone who plays music. We always have to translate that to Christian folk that don't seem to see, you know, the connection. And so, what kind of movements were these dancers using? If you read the Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary on this, and if you go to Stephen's great defense in Acts chapter 7 and read the commentary on that because he cites what was going on at this time, the most licentious rites were accompanied by this kind of worship. And so that's what is going on. Furthermore, look at the people in verse 25. It says, when Moses saw that the people were naked, that's what it says in the King James, but perhaps better translated in other versions as out of control. So the kind of barriers that are designed to protect us from one another, from uh, licentiousness and its effects on the opposite sex, those barriers, because of this music, are gone. And as a result, there is no restraint on the people. They are out of control. It says, for Aaron had made them out of control unto the shame among their enemies. So their enemies looked on, and they were the children of Israel were a laughingstock to their enemies. Now look at verse 6. Still describing the worship service. It says, They rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to do what? That's a very interesting word. That very same word is used in Genesis, if you'll turn there with me, Genesis chapter 26, and uh, I think roughly verses 8, 9. It's the situation where Isaac made the same mistake as his father, Abraham, when he went into the land and said, well, she's my sister. 
Well, in verse 9 of uh, Genesis chapter 26, let us read verse 8. It says, And it came to pass, when he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out at a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was, in the King James it says, sporting. The word sporting is the same word as play in Exodus chapter 32 and verse 6. So I don't know what the king was doing, but all of a sudden he was looking out and he saw them and he saw Isaac sporting with Rebekah, his wife, and he immediately reached a conclusion. Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, of a surety, she is thy wife. And how sayest thou she is my sister? And Isaac said unto him, Well, because I, you know, I, I said, lest I die for her. He said, Look, that kind of behavior is completely inappropriate for brother and sister. She's got to be your wife. Now, they say that fire belongs in the fireplace. But once it gets outside the fireplace, the house burns down. Basically, this was a very sensual kind of worship then. When it said they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, it was sensual, appealing to the lusts of the flesh. That word is also used in Judges chapter 16 and verse 25 about the strong man, Samson. Judges chapter 16, verses 24 and 25. When the people saw him, that is Samson, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has delivered into our hands our enemy, and the destroyer of our country which slew many of us. And it came to pass when their hearts were merry, that they said, call for Samson, that he may make us sport. That's the same word as play in Exodus chapter 32 and verse 6. And they called for Samson out of the prison house, and he made them sport, and they set him between the pillars. What are they basically saying? Call Samson out so that he can entertain us. Oh, that's the strong man from Israel. Look at him now. Ha, ha, ha. So this was a very entertaining form of worship as well. Not only sensual and appealing to the lusts of the flesh, but extremely entertaining. Now, going back to Exodus chapter 32, what was the philosophical base upon which this kind of worship was built upon? What framework was it built upon? If you go out and see a six-inch foundation, how many of you are going to conclude that the George R. Brown Convention Center is going to be built on that? Not many. There's a relationship between the foundation and the structure that is built upon it. You can't know everything about a structure from a foundation, but you can still know a lot of things. I don't know anything about building, but I know this convention center is not going on a six-inch foundation. It's not going to work. And no one builds this kind of, and no one builds a pole barn on a 250-foot foundation. It just doesn't work that way. Worship expresses the God we think we're serving. It's an expression of our God. These things are intricately connected. And so I want to take you to the foundation that they missed. 
Exodus chapter 31 and verse 3. We mentioned this the other day when we talked about the connection between the Spirit and the sanctuary. It was the Holy Spirit that, that, that prompted both this man here, Bezalel, and the children of Israel in 1 Chronicles 28 in the construction of the sanctuary. And so it says, I have filled him, God says, I have filled him, Bezalel, with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and in knowledge and all manner of workmanship so that he could do what? So that he could build the sanctuary and the tabernacle. I want you to notice another foundation that has, been, that has not been discerned. In Exodus chapter 31, verses 13 to 18, it talks about the Sabbath. It's very interesting that the Sabbath directly precedes what took place at the golden calf. Now, at the golden calf, they said, up, make us gods, which shall go before us. Think about that for a minute. Make us a god. If you are to make a god, where is your starting place? You've got two options. You can start with nothing, or you can start with something. Now, the last time I checked... The God of the universe, the creator who we worship, is the only one that can make something out of nothing. He's the only one that can do that. So if you are to make a God, you must start with something. And the moment you do that, you're done. Game is over. We might say that's pantheism or panentheism. Make us a God. You've got to make it out of the things that you can see, feel, hear, and touch. And the, the moment you say that that's God, you violated the Sabbath. Why? We read a quote from the great controversy the other day. The Sabbath reminds us that it is the true ground of worship, not just on the seventh day, but of all worship. Why? Because it reminds us that there is a distinction between the Creator and the creation and that they should never be confused. Never be confused. And so here you have a false foundation being laid. You have the six-inch foundation that's going down here now. In verse 1, that's what it says. Up, make us gods, which shall go before us. For as this man Moses, we don't know what's become of him. The moment they did that, this story plays out in a narrative. So look at it that way. Buildings are first built with the foundation, then everything else goes on top of it. Look, after they built this foundation, up make us gods, all of a sudden in verse 4 it says in the middle of the verse, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. What does that remind you of? Exodus chapter 20, right? That's a theme of grace. God brought us up out of the land of Egypt, but now it's these calves, confusion about salvation. You see, there are three doctrines that are inter in in intimately linked together here. The doctrine of God, the doctrine of salvation, and the doctrine of worship. And worship is based on who God is and how he acts. When you change who God is, you also change how he acts, and you're also going to change how you worship him. All right? And then... On top of this false foundation, well, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. They sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So there are two foundations that were left behind in this golden calf worship. It was the sanctuary and it was the Sabbath. They were not used as the building blocks. And this is the road that the rest of Christianity builds on. 
It's the foundation that the rest of Christianity uses. But God has given us the sanctuary and the great controversy and the Sabbath. So we described the characteristics of the worshipers. We looked at the worship service, and right now we're connecting it with theology. Um, I should have had the, the, the quotes up here, but in the spirit of prophecy it says, when we equate God with some force or with something tangible, the end result is always sensuality. Very interesting. You see, the devil doesn't come out and, you know, I mean, he doesn't come out and scare you all at once. He lays down ideas and principles and thoughts that, if accepted, ultimately lead in that direction. The devil's in the details, as they say. And so theology, philosophy, is incredibly important. Notice this connection here. Amazing connection in the book, The Great Controversy, between modes of worship and concepts of God. It states here, It is Satan's constant effort to misrepresent the character of God, the nature of sin, and the real issues at stake in the great controversy. His sophistry lessens the obligation of the divine law and gives men license to sin. At the same time, he causes them to cherish false conceptions of God. All right? So that they regard him with fear and hate rather than with love. The cruelty inherent in his own character is attributed to the Creator. Now notice this. It is embodied in systems of religion and expressed in modes of worship. What is a mode of worship? A mode of worship is a style or a way of doing things. And here she's making the connection that these are designed to give expression to whatever concepts of God you may have. And to borrow the analogy, you can't build, uh, if you've got a six-inch foundation, I tell you what, you've got a pole barn. You don't have the George R. Brown Convention Center. It's not going to work that way. That's an incredibly theological statement. You know, there's many people that say, well, Ellen White's writings are pastoral and all these types of things, but they're not theological. I beg to differ. Well, in Exodus chapter 32, it was the syncopated rhythms. I'm going to pick on rock music because, I mean, it's all pervasive. No matter what you want to call it, you can call it soft rock, hard rock, metal, um, rap it's all basically rock it's all basically rock i mean you can argue stylistically but rhythmically the way you experience the music is still pretty much the same um rock music is an expression of postmodernism have you learned have you learned that we're living in the postmodern world that means that there's no such thing as absolute truth well you might as well throw out your bible if you believe that there are as many truths as peoples and cultures. There's no such thing as an all-encompassing truth that's universally valid for everyone. Now, uh, these things are all interrelated. So we've got, we've got uh, doesn't the Bible say that God is a God of truth? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. What happens when you define truth in the way that the Bible doesn't? What does it do to the rest of this package? Whoops. Well... If you have no truth, no absolute truth on the bottom, well, can you really believe in a remnant then? No, that's got to go out the window. Because that's arrogant. That's just the way you view the truth. 
is there really any such thing as false worship? No, there can just be varying degrees of true worship. There's no such thing. And, and then how do we make decisions if there's no such thing as absolute truth? You know what the last verse of the book of Judges says, right? Everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. And so could it be that some of the diverse ways that we are worshiping in the Adventist church really communicates pluralism instead of genuine diversity? Especially when we're using these syncopated rhythms. So you go to one church service and bang, the syncopated rhythms are there. And then you go to the early morning service and they're not there. And that's phrased as, well, we've got to speak to each generation. I know that that's the, I know that's what you hear. But could it be that really this is the foundation that underlies it? And if you don't know the difference between pluralism and diversity, how can you tell that what you're doing then is genuine diversity? If you can't articulate the difference between the two. Notice what one theologian said. Film may have made postmodern popular culture possible, and television may have disseminated that culture, but rock music is probably the most representative form of postmodern culture. Rock music embodies a central hallmark of postmodernity. Its dual focus on the global and the local and the offerings of the big stars and the small town bands alike. Rock reflects a plurality of styles borrowed from local and ethnic musical forms. That's Stanley Grintz's book, A Primer on Postmodernism. Notice what he says in this page, page 37 and 38. The pop culture of our day reflects the, what does that say up there? Centerless. There's no such thing as a center. Pluralism. Contradictory systems of, 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 of belief. The pop culture also gives expression to the anti-rationalism of postmodernism. Notice this astute observation. As evidenced in the clothes they wear and the music they listen to, postmoderns are no longer convinced that their world has a center. Because they're the center of their world. When I was taking uh, music history back in the day, about 20 years ago, we would always study philosophy first. And back then, I was like, I came here to study music history, which I didn't want to study anyway at the time. Why are we discussing philosophy? And it took me 20 years to figure out why. That's because whatever rules the heart forms the art. Do you think that, you know, all of a sudden these guys woke up and, 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 and composed the way they did? Do, do you think that they wrote poetry simply because they woke up someday and wrote the way they did? Do you think they did architecture the way they did because there was no underground, underlying philosophy to dictate what the architecture should be like? Nothing could be further from the truth. If you were to play some of this modern, you know, uh, 20th century music, well, that's not even rock. 20th century strives for the complete obliteration of anything that's coherent. It's like taking a big fan and cranking it up to 6,000 RPM and dumping some paint and then watching the paint just go on the canvas and everyone's standing back and saying, wow, that's profound. (laughs) What is it? Well, Well, it's whatever you make it to be. Actually, it doesn't exist until you make it to be something and you interact with it. Now, if they were to take that 20th century music and play it in Box Day, they'd be arresting that person for Looney Tunes. 
they'd automatically know that this person has lost their mind. They wouldn't judge it only on the basis of musical characteristics, but also because their elevator didn't go to the top. How can you believe nonsense like that? And you're trying to express it through your music. Now, we're picking on the rhythmic aspects because at the golden calf, it sounded like the noise of war, right? Look at the scientific evidence. Perhaps the most important defining quality of rock and roll is the beat. Rock and roll is different because from other music, primarily because of the beat. Oh, by the way, I know that I'm in Texas now, and I just moved to Arkansas. i got to tell you something humorous. I'm not sure if my wife is here, but uh, she's uh, working down here now. And um, as she was working, somebody mentioned the name Willie Nelson. And my wife made the mistake of saying, who's Willie Nelson? (laughs) I tell you what, they laughed and derided her for that entire 12-hour shift. I said, dear, we're in Arkansas now. So country music has not escaped, friends, okay? (laughs) And because most country is probably rock rhythmically. Maybe the old country was, but uh, country is rock. It is with our bodies that we first respond to the rhythm of music. That's not necessarily a bad thing. But when the rhythms are syncopated, well, your body's moving a certain way. The perception of rhythm involves the whole organism, psychology of music. Sound effects, page 240. The sexuality of music is usually referred to in terms of its rhythm. It is the beat that commands a directly physical response. When I usually do these seminars... um, I actually have my drum set here. I didn't ask them to order it this year. But I actually demonstrate that. So if you buy the DVD, you will have that. And so I realize that some of the, the terms I'm using may be uh, intangible. And, I, and it really helps a lot. I've learned when you know I can have the drum set. But it just wasn't time for it this year. Uh, but once I start playing it, um, yes, you will discover movement that some of you never knew you had. When pulsation and syncopation are the rhythmic foundations of the music at a dance hall, the movements of the dancers can invariably be seen to become very sensual. Really. That's a no-brainer for musicians. The secret power of music, 199. Musical rhythms affect both our hearts and our brains. One road to to arousing a range of agitated feelings... Sometimes sexual is through pronounced and insistent rhythms artfully used to heighten the sexual tension. Drumming may produce these powerful effects by actually driving the brain's electrical rhythm psychology today. I don't want you to lose sight of the bigger picture in Exodus 32. These rhythms were built upon the false foundation, which was begun in verse 1, which said, Make us gods which shall go before us, a form of pantheism or panentheism in which God is indistinguishable from nature. Once you have that, then your expressions of that God will undoubtedly be sensual through your music. So don't lose sight of that. What about the music industry? Do they know what they're doing? Rhythm, this is Duke Ellington, a famous jazz great in his Loretto, A Drum to a Drum is a Woman, in which he makes it clear that, a, a, that he means a drum is a goddess. Rhythm came from Africa to America. Do you know what it does to you? Exactly what it's supposed to. Little Richard, the claim is that he is a seventh, he's a Seventh-day Adventist, or at least has Seventh-day Adventist roots. Uh, 
The Life and Times of Little Richard, page 197. My true belief about rock and roll, and there have been a lot of phrases attributed to me over the years, is this. I believe this kind of music is demonic. A lot of beats and music today are taken from voodoo, from the voodoo drums. If you study music and rhythms like I have, you'll see that it is true. And Sinead O'Connor said this. Hip-hop, or rap, is the most powerful form of music and communication. It's very spiritual. It's got so many messages within its words. Oh, wait a minute. I didn't read that right. I'm sorry. It's got so many messages within its rhythms, within the drum beats, ah, as well as the, its words. People don't realize how powerful hip-hop is musically. Music is the most powerful form of communication. Now, I mentioned yesterday that the symbol was used in the sanctuary, so I want to give you uh, an example of someone um, who has clearly stated that the symbols, as I read it, were not used by the pre-cantor to conduct the singing by beating out the rhythm of the song or a stanza in the song, but rather to announce the beginning of the song or a stanza in the song. Since they were used to introduce the song, they were wielded by the head of choir on ordinary occasions or by the three heads of the guilds on extraordinary occasions. Since the trumpets and the cymbals were played together to announce the beginning of the song, the players of both are called the sounder in First Chronicles 16.42. Again, even those who want to justify the use of rock, jazz, and all the related hybrids in the worship service today are all agreed that the cymbals were not used to beat out the rhythm of the song back then. They weren't used that way. And I have many more sources other than this to bring this to, uh, to, to verify that. I briefly mentioned the bringing of the ark to Jerusalem in First Chronicles 13. You know, they put the ark on a new cart. Where'd they get that idea from? The Philistines. Somehow we're always looking at the Philistines. How do they do church? How do they do things? Maybe if we work like them, we'll get people into the church too, as if that's really success. If we really wanted to get people in, then yes, we could do all kinds of things to get people in. God is looking for a certain kind of people, and he doesn't require us to water down his message in order for that to happen. They put it on a new cart. There were timbrels involved in verse 8. They got an A-plus for enthusiasm. But yet in verse 11, as the oxen stumbled, the Lord made a breach upon Uzzah. When King David had the opportunity to study the Bible a little closer, he realized, as it says in 1 Chronicles 15, verse 2, only the Levites were to carry the ark. And in verses 11 to 13, he says, you know why this happened? Because we didn't seek God after the due order. There's a way to do things, and we transgressed that, and we went against the law of cause and effect, and this is why it happened. Later on, in verse 16... He has a Bible study. They begin to carry the ark correctly. No timbrels are now involved. Very interesting. Only the instruments of David. Now, uh, for some of you that are drummers or thinking about drums, there is a distinction between the drum set and percussion, all right? Not all drums are the same. Um, they come from two different families. They differ in the way that they are played. Even when the drum set is used to accompany an orchestra, the music has been transformed to rock. And just in case you don't believe me, this is a testimony of another drummer. He says, I'm sure we're all familiar with the trap set through its use in jazz and rock music, even though the traps are the new kids on the block. I'll show you a picture of the trap set in percussion in just a minute. 
the trap drums are not only unique in their construction, but also in how they are played. Each trap drummer is required to be virtually a one-man band of percussive sounds, and this demands of him being able to split his attention evenly between both feet and both hands, as well as the music of which he is a part. This alone is a skill in itself not found among most percussionists, and usually takes years of training to develop. Uh, again, according to Mickey Hart, he is the drummer for the group The Grateful Dead. And I think some of them are dead right now. He says the origin and development of the trap set rivals that of the Model T, the first production vehicle. In other words, he's making the point that this is a unique instrument not to be confused with other drums. So there you have the trap set on uh, your left. You have to sit down and play that. You have your left foot play, if you, uh, on your hi-hat, that little thing with the cymbals that goes like, you know, like this. And uh, you have your right, you know, your right foot on the bass drum and, and, and your hands are, are moving. That's the trap set. That's part of the greater part of percussion, sure. But you cannot confuse the trap set with percussion. And there's nothing intrinsically evil about a drum. Unfortunately, the only thing the trap set is designed to play is rock or jazz or any of the related hybrids. That's the only thing it was designed to play. And if you're playing it the way it's designed to be played, that's what you will play. Percussion is not limited to that. Uh, you can have music that's driven by melody and harmony and still have percussion and there's nothing necessarily objectionable to that. All right? So, um, yes, don't confuse them because they are really not the same. Just to conclude here, when syncopated rhythms are emphasized, it sounds like the noise of war. The people are out of control. It's very sensual and entertaining, appealing to the lusts of the flesh. This is reflected in the movements of the dancers at the golden, at the golden calf. Okay, I guess I, I guess I didn't think that uh, bringing the Ark of Jerusalem to Jerusalem was enough. <laughs> Apparently, we needed to hear that message again. Um, and so, as I mentioned earlier in Selected Messages, Volume Two, about the Holy Flesh movement, there would be shouting with drums, music, and dancing. These things would occur just before the close of probation. This is what some people will call, would call the moving of the Holy Spirit, as the rhythms then played and his emotions were charged up. People would interpret that as the Holy Spirit, but she calls that an invention of Satan to cover up his ingenious methods of making the truth of none effect. And so I'm just simply summarizing for the sake of time because I do want, to, do want to give you a break. We want to go by the Bible and the Bible only. It was the false foundation in Exodus chapter 32 verse 1 that led directly to that sensual, entertaining form of worship in which the rhythms were dominant. It sounded like the noise of war. That's the key to help you to understand, hey, it's not melody and harmony that's being primary if it's the noise of war. It's the syncopated rhythms that are dominant, and they are built upon a false foundation, a completely false foundation. You're not going to get the convention center on a six-inch foundation. You've got to completely switch foundations, and that's what we are going to do when we come back. So take a five-minute or so break, and we'll see you back very shortly. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.
www.ifmcc.org. 